0: Well, good morning. How we doing? So good to see y'all. Good to be with you this morning. Roll Tide. Uh, amen to that, right? Some of y'all lost a couple of years on your life last night. But that's it's all right. So, well, hey, uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Kyle Bryant, and I am the college pastor here at ABC. And I am so excited to get to preach God's word this morning. Uh, So thankful to Pastors Colby and Keith for the opportunity, and I'm excited to help us start off our our Advent series like we talked about. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 1 and 2 today, looking at uh, the birth of the king. And we've already had a great kind of introduction to our Advent series, but just to kind of remind you why we do this is at ABC, we love to follow the church tradition of the first four Sundays before Christmas, where we reflect on the Advent of Christ, which is a word that means arrival, means coming. And we celebrate and we reflect on the first coming of Christ, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And it's a really powerful thing, I think, that's very beneficial for us uh, every year as we look at this. And so we're going to look at, really in the, the month of December, we're going to look at the birth, the life, death, resurrection, and then the second coming of Jesus. And I'm really excited about doing this. And uh, we've been walking through a series the past few months on First and Second Samuel, looking at the story of, of a king, right? Looking at King David and the connections that he has to Christ. And now we're going to look at, for the, sto- for the month of December, the story of the king, the story of King Jesus. And so we'll be in Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 today looking at the birth of that king. Uh, but Advent is connected to Christmas, and man, we've got this place decked out for Christmas, and I love it. The poinsettias, the, the classic Christmas plant of the Baptist church, So, um, and Christmas in general. But, um, but I know that Christmas comes a lot of different opinions when it comes to the cultural ways that we celebrate Christmas. Uh, me and my wife got married in the summertime, and it's going to be our first Christmas together, so we're, we're really excited about that. Yeah, I heard all the awes. It's very sweet. We're excited about it. We have the little ornament that says, you know, our first Christmas. My mom gave it to us, so it's great. Um, But uh, we went all out. We got a a Christmas tree, a real Christmas tree this year. Like, we put it on top of the car and drove it home. It was a big deal. Um, But it's been great. But I know that we all celebrate Christmas differently, and we have different opinions about it. But there's one thing I think we can all get behind when it comes to Christmas. It's Hallmark Christmas movies. That's the real thing that unites us. Because I don't know if you see many of these things, but they're all literally the same movie, just made differently. And like, but people love them. Like, cause I mean, this time of the year, that's all they play is these Christmas movies. And they're, they're the cheesiest things ever known to man, but we love them. And they're making like 33 of them this year to, to release. And I'm serious. Someone's excited about it right there. So someone's excited. So, but here's the thing. Hey, they're great. I, I may have watched a couple the past few weeks, and so um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, all right? So, but I think there's a reason that we love these things so much. We know what's going to happen, right? The, from the minute the thing starts, you know who's going to fall in love with who. We know the big city girl is going to get broken up with by somebody. She's going to move to the small town for Christmas stuff. She's going to meet the guy who only wears sweaters ever, right? <laughs> they're going to fall in love. They're going to kiss, and it's going to snow, inside or outside. It's going to snow. Somehow, it's going to snow inside or outside, but we love the stories, even though we know it's going to happen. And the reason is this. We, we love entering into that story, even though we know where it's going. So we love the experience of entering into it. We love the safety and the comfort of, of watching a classic love story unfold, even though we know where it's going. I think that's the beauty of Advent as well, is that we, we know these stories, right? We know the story of Jesus. Even culturally, as a country, we know the story of Christmas, right? But every year, we need to enter in anew into the story of Christ, to experience it, to see its love, to see the beauty, to see the power and the transforming potential that it has in our lives as we reflect on the second coming of Jesus as well. And we want to come in and like we sang, behold the wondrous mystery of Christ being born. So that's why we celebrate Advent here in 2018 and here every year. So with that said, let's look at Matthew 1 today. Let's look at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. And before we do that, I want to pray for us and then we'll kind of launch into this message today. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a God who's come to us to save us, that you sent your son Jesus to to accomplish things that we could never do, to live the life that we uh, were supposed to live but could never live, to die in our place, uh, or to be the gift on our behalf, a gift of grace to bring us back to yourself. And so today as we celebrate the birth of the king, as we look at you coming into this world, may it, uh, even though it's a familiar story, May it be a story that uh, brings freshness, uh, brings uh, affection in our hearts for Christ, and that transforms the way that we view not just this season, but even uh, our whole lives today. I pray that you would speak through me and use me to proclaim your glory and your gospel. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's look at Matthew 1-1 here and get this thing started. So Matthew 1-1, like I said, we're going to be in the book of Matthew during this month because his focus mainly is on the messiahship, the kingship of Jesus. Matthew 1, 1 says this. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you're going to expect me to read all those names on that page. I'm not going to do it. All right. Because number one, it's long for sake of time. We'll skip it. But also for sake of the fact that I don't want to pronounce them all in front of you. I'm like Colby. I get nervous and I say them wrong. Right? So, But here's the thing. what we see here is this, we see a family tree that Matthew gives us at the beginning of his gospel talking about King Jesus coming. And the reason he does that is really a few specific reasons. The first is that uh, family trees and genealogies were very important at that time in Jewish culture. They told a lot about who a person was and what we should expect from them. But also secondly, Matthew specifically gives us this genealogy because he wants to give us proof of exactly who he says Jesus is in Matthew one one. that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's King Jesus, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. So what I want to do without reading all those names is for us to kind of survey this list really quick and look at really two specific things. And I gave this to you in your outline. It's this, is that even the way that Jesus came and when he came is incredibly significant because of this, that he came in a line full of brokenness, but he also came in a line full of promise. Because Jesus, or Matthew, when he writes this genealogy of Jesus, he's not just listing out a bunch of names for the sake of having names, but he's really wanting us to recall a story, that every one of these names remind us of the story that God has been unfolding up into this point in history of God's plan to, to heal the brokenness of the world and all the promises involved in that. And so what I want us to do for just a, a few minutes is to use this list as a launching pad to just remember the story of the Bible up to this point so far and kind of get ourselves seated into the context of where Jesus is coming. So if you go way back to the beginning of the Bible, we see in the book of Genesis, right, that God made every person for a relationship with himself. He made us all in his image to walk with him and to know him personally and intimately But we saw that just like Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, we've all rebelled and we've rejected God's authority in our lives, his kingship in our lives. And because of that, there's separation in our lives now that we're separated from God and that relationship is broken. But we know God is a God of love, a God that pursues us even in our rebellion. So we fast forward a little bit to the story of Abraham, that God chooses to reveal himself to a man named Abraham and he promises to Abraham, he's going to lead him into a new land and he's going to make Abraham a great nation. and he's gonna bless him, and through his descendants, all the earth shall be blessed. See, we already see God working out this plan and bringing people back to himself. But even in that promise, there was brokenness because we know the story of Abraham is that even though Abraham did have a son, it took a long time for him to have that son. There was lots of struggle, there was impatience, there was sin, and even after he did have his descendant and saw some of his children be born, he still didn't see the full fulfillment of that promise. And then we fast forward to Abraham's descendants, who become known as the people of Israel. They get driven, driven by famine into the land of Egypt. And there in Egypt, they experience brokenness because they begin to grow in number. The Pharaoh says, these people are gonna take us over. We have to oppress them. So they oppress them as slaves. And the people live in Egypt as slaves for about 400 years. And they begin to wonder what's happening with this promise of blessing. Where's that coming from? But even after they get set free, set free when God uses Moses, to lead them to the promised land. Even on the way to the promised land, there's brokenness and struggle because they have to wander in the desert for 40 years because of their own rebellion. Even Moses himself, the man that leads them into the promised land, because of his disobedience, he can't enter the promised land. We also see that even once they enter the promised land, there's sin, there's struggle, there's brokenness because they have to wrestle with the nations that are there in in that promised land. They have to wrestle with the nations around them. They have to wrestle with their own sin. So God raises up judges and he raises up kings to lead the people. And we talked about that with with King David and the kind of the kingship thing mentioned in the past few weeks. But when King David comes around, God yet again kind of sets a new promise in place. And Jared did a great job preaching on this a few weeks ago, but God promises to David. He says, David, I'm gonna raise up your descendants and I'm gonna use you to establish a house and a kingdom forever. But even in that promise, we see some brokenness because David sins, David falls, and it really, his sin begins to lead to this momentum of the whole nation falling apart. That we have king after king, who we have a couple of good ones, we have a lot of bad ones, and they're broken, and it's a whole mess, and the nation falls apart. And the people get, begin to get oppressed by other nations. They get taken captive, they get taken away from nations like Babylon, like Assyria. And they're left to wonder what happened to these promises that God gave to us. These prophets begin to rise up and say, listen, the Messiah is coming. This anointed leader is going to come and he's going to set you free. He's going to save the people. But where? Where where is he at? And the people are left to wonder these questions. Finally, they're allowed to return home. But even in that, they're still oppressed by other nations. And when we look at the story of Jesus being born, the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Roman government. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, for 400 years before Christ came, God didn't say a word through the prophets. 400 years of silence. If I stood up here for 400 seconds and didn't say anything, we'd all feel really awkward, right? But imagine 400 years, longer than America's been a nation, the prophets aren't prophesying Jesus, God isn't speaking to the people. And so the people are left wondering, where is God in the midst of this? If he made these promises to fulfill, then what is he doing? But we see here in Matthew 1.1 that Jesus, the word of God, breaks the very silence as he comes to the earth. And as Matthew says, he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. But he fulfilled those things in some unique ways because think about it, he came as the son of David. He came as the fulfillment of God's promise to David to establish a house and a kingdom. But yet he didn't fulfill those things in a way that we would think. He didn't come to defeat political enemies, but he came to defeat spiritual enemies, the true enemies of God's people, of sin and death, he didn't come to establish a political kingdom, but he came to establish an eternal kingdom of peace where God rules with perfect justice over his people. And when it comes to being the son of Abraham, God didn't come to, Jesus didn't come to bring simply the blessings of material comfort and of wealth, but he came to bring the true blessings of eternal life to all that will believe in him. And specifically, as we even see in this genealogy, he came to bring blessing to every person, both Gentile, Jew, insider, and outsider, anyone who would believe in his name. And so for us in practically today, what what might that mean for us as we enter into the story of Jesus, as we enter into the birth of the king? I think it's this, is that sometimes it seems like we have reasons to, to have no hope, that we move from one stage of disappointment to another stage of disappointment. And we wonder what in the world God is doing in our lives, that we think that he, he's silent, he's given up on us, that we're just, we're just done, that God is just kind of tired, he's frustrated, maybe he's just disappointed in the fact that he's like, okay, you just do whatever you want to, I'm done with you. But we see in the biblical story that even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our mess, that, that God's promises never fail. That his story that he's weaving is so much bigger than ours. And even in our small stories of mess, that God is at work. And he, he sent Jesus to establish his kingdom that will one day when he comes again be completely fulfilled. And in the meantime, even though it may be the hardest thing for us to do sometimes to wait and to trust God in the brokenness and the mess, and he's calling us to trust him, to seek him even in the midst of maybe even seemingly silence, maybe even in times of hardship. He's calling us to trust in him and to wait because his promises will be fulfilled. So we see that even in the context of when Jesus came. But let's look now at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 and look at not when he came, but look at how he came. So let's skip down to chapter, uh, to chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read together. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, if you notice, Matthew, he doesn't give us the quintessential Christmas story that we're used to in Luke 2 because he has a different focus in mind. He's focusing on Jesus being king. But I want to kind of reflect on a few details that maybe uh, we need to know in order to look at our points today. Is, first is this. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. They were very blue-collar, ordinary Jewish people of that time. But we know that Mary was engaged to Joseph. And engagement in that culture at the time was much more serious than it is today to where if you wanted to call off an engagement, you actually had to file for a divorce and have a good reason to file for a divorce. And so that's why they would be called husband and wife, even though they weren't actually married yet, they were called that because engagement was more serious. Now we know an angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she's pregnant, that the child is not a normal child, but it's conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he'd be the Son of God. But one thing that's left out here is this, is that in Luke, we learn that Mary, as soon as she finds out she's pregnant, she leaves for three months and she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth and she stays with her for three months and then comes back. So imagine when she arrives again in town, what Joseph is thinking when he sees his fiance show up three months pregnant from her little trip. Uh, imagine maybe the, the heartbreak and the, the, the disappointment, the frustration, all the things that may be going on in his, in his mind that leads him, like we see in this passage, to contemplate divorcing her. But we see that, that Joseph, Joseph is a good guy. He loves Mary. And so he wants to divorce, divorce her quietly and in secret to not make a big scene. But we see that an angel appears and tells him a very similar thing that, that Mary has been told. That this is the son of God. That his name will be called Jesus. Which really is Yeshua, which means Hebrew for the Lord saves. That the Lord will save. And he's going to be called that because the Lord will save. Uh, will use him to save the people from their sins. And then Matthew makes this connection to Isaiah chapter 7, which we heard some during our our reading today. But in that prophecy, a child will, will be born of a virgin and he'll be a sign that God is with his people and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And so Joseph obeys. He takes Mary as his wife and they have a son, they call him Jesus. But in this story, I want to point out really two specific things I think are really significant for us today about looking how Jesus came. And the two things are this. Number one is he came as a man, but also he came as God with us. He came as a man, but he came as God with us. So him coming as a man, why does that matter? Well, first, there's a few big implications. The first is this, the virgin birth. I know there's some debate today about why does the virgin birth even matter that much? Like, should we even believe it? Some polls have been taken, and it's kind of a debate even among among Americans if it's true or not. Uh, But the thing is, the virgin birth matters a whole bunch when it comes to our faith, and we could spend a whole message on that. But the big idea is this. The reason the virgin birth matters is is this is God coming to do something that mankind could never do on their own. No one can be born without a, a man and a wife involved, right? But yet Jesus comes in a way that shows that this is God intervening in a way that only he can do to save us from our sins. And just like spiritually, we're completely unable on our own to save ourselves and to to bring ourselves from spiritual death to life. In this way, this is God showing that I'm stepping in to do something that you can't do. Even in a way that goes outside of my normal created order, I'm, I'm showing you this is me stepping in to do something that you can't do to save you. But also we see that if Jesus was a man, also means he was completely human that he experienced life the way that we do, that he got thirsty, right? He had to grow up, you know, he had to learn things. He got uh, hungry, he got tired, sleepy, happy, sad, angry. He may even got hangry sometimes, a combination of hungry and angry. He he experienced the full range of emotions that we do, but also in this story specifically, he was born as a baby, that Mary and Joseph had to change the diaper of the son of God, that God allowed himself to become in and be born vulnerable and to be born needy. And that, who would think that God would be, would be born in a way that we could hold him in our hands, but yet know the same baby we're holding is the one who created the entire universe. That's a wonderful mystery. That's a wondrous mystery like we sing about. But thirdly, we see with this is that if Jesus was a man, then also, yes, he was completely human, but he was the perfect human as well. That he came and after he, as he began to grow up, he lived the perfect life. He lived that life that we should have lived to be accepted by God. He was tempted in every way, but yet he never broke. And he lived that perfect life so that we could receive his righteousness and and he could take on our sin for us on the cross. And this is all incredibly significant. And and Paul, the apostle Paul reflecting on this in Philippians 2, says it this way. In verse 6 through 8, he says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus willingly did that for us. He laid down his life for us. So he came as a man, but also he came as God. And if you look at Matthew's description of Jesus, we really see three specific ways he came as God. He came as savior, he came as Emmanuel, God with us, and he came as king. But specifically, Matthew says that Jesus' name means the Lord saves which I think gives us some great insight into this because what did Jesus come to save us from? He came to save us from our sins. But even our sins, think about that. What, are, what does it mean to be in our sins? What is the result of us being in our sins? Well, it's an awful state to be in. Because in our sins, we're a bunch of things. We're separated from God in our sins. We're cut off from the very thing that gives us meaning, that gives us the reason to exist. In our sin, we're unable to live the life we were made to live that our desires and even our hearts are corrupted down to the very core because of what sin has done to us. In our sin, we're blind to what we really need. We think we're way better off than we are, and we go to the wrong things to find healing and to find wholeness. We're blind to those things. In our sin, we're under God's judgment that we are guilty before God, and we rightly deserve his punishment in our sins. And in our sins, we're absolutely hopeless for any of this to change on our own. But if Jesus came to save us from our sins, if he came to be our savior, born in a barn, then he's come to save us from all those things. He's come to repair the separation we have with God. If he's God with us, that means that God has come to bridge that separation to restore what was broken. Because we're unable, Jesus came to give us new life. And as our king, he comes to rule over our lives and teach us and show us the true life of fullness and what the good life really is, which is life in the kingdom of God. Because we're blind, Christ came to open up our eyes to our true need for him and to fill that need with his grace. Christ took on God's judgment for us so that we don't have to take on his judgment, but instead we can experience his mercy and grace because he took the punishment in our place. And lastly, Christ came to give us hope, which is kind of the first candle of Advent. He came to give us hope because he came to do what we could never do. He came to bridge the impossible because what's impossible with man is possible with God. He came to bridge that gap for us. But practically then, I think really what we can see in this story, even specifically in uh, Matthew 1, to 25, is this. Is that Jesus' birth, the birth of Christ, is really the story of God himself entering into our story. It's God entering into our story, especially with its messiness and especially with its brokenness. Because if you think about it, the Christmas story, it's really full of a lot of scandal. Like we have a, a woman who becomes pregnant out of wedlock. We have a fiance debating to leave her. We have the son of God, the king of the Jews born in a barn. There's a lot of things here that are very scandalous. But that's exactly how God chose to enter the world because he wants us to see in this story that he's not afraid to enter into our mess. He's not afraid to enter into the brokenness of this world. That's the way he's always worked. And one thing we didn't mention in Matthew's genealogy, if you go back and look at the beginning of Matthew 1, you notice that Matthew names some people that are kind of, you know, rare to be seen in a genealogy, it's women. In that time, they didn't mention women in genealogies. But Matthew did specifically because he wanted to point out even who Jesus was being associated with and the stories that he was connected to all throughout biblical history. Because if we look at that genealogy, we see names like Tamar. We see names like Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and even Mary there at the end. And if you go back and look at their stories, those stories are full of all kinds of brokenness. They're full of uh, abuse, manipulation, prostitution, redemption, uh, murder, uh, a woman losing her husband, having to travel to a new land where she was an outsider, manipulation, all kinds of things like that. We see tons of brokenness and tons of mess in the midst of those stories, but we also see grace and we see redemption and we see the Lord pursuing his people in the midst of a whole bunch of mess. And I think the reason that we see this and the reason that Matthew highlights this is because in the story of Christ coming to be born, We see that God isn't afraid to be associated with our mess. That God's not afraid of our sin. He's not afraid of our brokenness. But he wants to enter into that, right? He wants to take the parts of our stories in our lives that we would maybe say are stories of shame and stories of hurt and pain. And he wants to transform our stories into a story of grace, into a story of redemption, into a story of beauty. Because Christ isn't afraid to enter into our stories, whether we think our stories are boring or they're broken but he wants to come in. But the key in that is that we have to receive him as king. We have to allow him to enter into our story. And so that takes us to our last point today. Point three is that how he was received. So let's pick up in chapter two of Matthew. We're gonna read verses uh, two, one through 12, and I'll kind of summarize the rest of it for us today. Starting in verse one of chapter two says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So timeline-wise, we know this story takes place probably 1 to 2 years after Jesus was born. So if you have a nativity scene with baby Jesus and the wise men, it's not historically accurate, but you do you. Okay, but it's just so you know, that's, you know, a little bit different. But we know, so Jesus is about one or two years old at this point. And in this story, what we see is this, and Matthew kind of contrasts this for us, is that we have two groups that are being contrasted. We have the outsiders of the wise men, and we have the insiders of King Herod, and we have a contrast in how they receive this king. Because if you knew much about the wise men, we know they were from Persia or Arabia, and they were astronomers, they were maybe astrologers, and they would study the stars to determine when special events would happen. And they believed that uh, when a new star appeared over an area, it uh, symbolized that a new king was born in that area. So they see this star kind of to the, um, from the east, they see it over in the Jerusalem area, they head that way. And they go to Jerusalem, they expect the king of Jerusalem, of course, of all people, the king of Jerusalem, right, would know where this king of the Jews was to be born. Like he would, he would know, right? And there's some great irony in this because they come to King Herod, but there's some things you need to know about King Herod that we know from history, right? Because King Herod was actually more of a puppet king than he really was a king in that land. Uh, the Roman government was in charge, so he was more of a puppet king. But Herod actually wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So he wasn't Jewish, but he supposedly converted to Judaism, but we see uh, he converted Judaism when he became king, but we see that that kind of is a sham from the way he behaves in this story. But here's the thing you need to know is that he was a slick politician and he would fund building campaigns in the area to kind of win people over uh, in the land. And one thing he funded was called the Herodium, which he named after himself, basically as a testament to how awesome he thought he was. And so, but the thing we know from history is this: that even though in all that building campaign stuff, Herod was a paranoid tyrant. He was an absolute paranoid tyrant. He was married ten times, you know, and uh, which is never good, right? He's married ten times, and he killed his favorite wife. Which there's if you say you have a favorite wife, you're already in trouble, right? So, but he killed his favorite wife, and he killed two of his sons because he was suspicious of them, saying they were going to rebel against him. He heard rumors they they were going to betray him, so he had both of them killed out of his own paranoia and being an absolute tyrant, all right? And so he is kind of the anti-example here in this story. And we see in this story exactly how fake here it is, even in the way he responds to the wise men. Because notice like when the wise men come to him, asking where this king of the Jews is to be born, he has no idea. He has to ask his assistants, hey, what does that prophecy say about where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born? And they have to tell him, but it was very widely known at that time by the Jewish people that Micah 5 prophesied the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But King Herod doesn't even know that basic prophecy. He has to get his assistants to tell him. So then he comes up with this scheme to send the wise men to go find out where Jesus is. They'll come back and then he'll go and he'll worship the king, which we see really means he wants to kill the king of the Jews. And so what happens, the wise men, they go find Jesus. And they offer him gifts. And we don't know if there were three wise men, if there were a whole bunch of them, but they offered three gifts and they were gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those are there's a lot of symbolism we could talk about there, but really the point is that they're royal gifts. They're gifts that people would give to a newborn king. They, they symbolize Christ's royalty. But then the wise men get, a, get notified by dream they should not go back to Herod. So they head back home another way. Herod eventually learns they didn't come back. He freaks out. And we see in the rest of chapter two, that he lashes out by having every boy two years old or younger in Bethlehem killed, which probably would have been only about 20 children, but still way more than it should be. Right. But he lashes out, has these children killed, but Mary and Joseph escape this and have Jesus escape this through a dream. They hear this is going to happen and they leave, they go to Egypt. They eventually come back after Herod has died. They eventually resettle in Nazareth where Jesus grows up. So that's the story. But in this, we see two contrasts that happen. We see the outsiders who, um, excuse me. the outsiders who honor him as king and we see the insiders who reject him as king. So let's think about that for a second because the, the wise men, they were like the last people that the Jews would expect to be the symbol of how to honor Jesus as king. They were, they were Gentiles. They, they were pagans. They, they weren't Jews. They weren't the people that we should emulate in that kind of way. And we have no idea if the wise men actually converted to be Christians or not. They obviously are very happy to find Jesus. They worship him. But what we do see in this is really even a fulfillment of what exactly Christ came to do. And it's to bring in the outsiders. If you look at the gospel of John, John chapter 1, 11 through 13 says this. It says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see in this story already that Christ is coming for everyone, the good, the bad, the clean, the unclean, the Jew, and the Gentile. But he came that anyone, no matter who they are, can find life in his name, can become a child of God if they believe in him. But then we compare that with the insiders of Herod and how they reject him. Because the, the very people who should have been expecting and waiting for this king, this Messiah, are the very people who completely miss it. When he comes, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are only about five miles apart, but yet Herod and his assistants completely miss Jesus coming. And when they find out where he he is, they try to kill him. They try to kill him. And so why do they reject him? Like, why would Herod be motivated to reject Jesus? And why would his assistants be motivated to reject him? And why were so many people motivated to reject this true king of the Jews? Well, that's kind of where we're gonna land today is with this, is that Herod and the others rejected Jesus as king, because they knew, in, they knew that in Jesus coming as king, they were gonna to have to lay down their own little kingdoms. That Jesus coming as king means they would have to step off, not just a physical throne, but even the throne of their own lives and allow this true king of kings to come in and to rule. And we've, many of us find ourselves in that same situation today because Jesus has come as king. He's come as Messiah. He's come as king in the middle of our brokenness. He's come as king to save us from our sins. And to show us a better way of life. But to receive him as king and to enter into this kingdom. And to enter into this new life. We have to lay down our own little kingdoms. We have to lay down our lives. Because our natural tendency on our own is to live for our own kingdoms. Right? To live for ourselves, for our own concerns. Uh, to live for our own control in our lives. And we push back against any authority that would tell us that we're not in control of our lives. We push back against any authority that would tell us that we're not enough. We get mad in traffic because it's impeding the great schedule that we want to have. We get frustrated at people when they kind of get in the way of the plans that we have for our lives, that we really, on our own, naturally live for our own kingdom. But we see, even like with Herod, that when we, leave for, live, when we live for our own kingdom, really what happens is we begin to destroy the very things that are good for us. We begin to destroy the good things in our lives, and that path of living for our own kingdom only leads to destruction. It leads to absolute destruction. But yet Jesus arrives as the king of kings declaring a much greater kingdom. He comes in declaring the kingdom of God. And it's in that kingdom that we truly find life and peace and joy. And we only find that as we release control of our lives, as we step away from the throne of our lives, as we allow Christ to come and sit on the throne of our lives because he's the only one who really can rule well. In our lives, He's the only one who has the authority and the ability to show us the true path to life and to show us how to live well and live a life of, of fullness, a life of flourishing in the kingdom of God. So much of our lives is a battle. It's a battle for two different kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of ourselves. But the beautiful thing is this, is that in that battle, the king himself came and laid down his life for us. He did the unthinkable, that King Jesus came and died like a criminal on a Roman cross in order to open the path for us to even enter into this kingdom, to even give us the ability to lay down our own thrones and allow him to step up on it instead. And he willingly did that for us so we can receive him as king. And so as we begin to close today, maybe for many of us, this Christmas time, this season of Advent can be a time for us to kind of reflect on which kingdom we're living for. Are we living for the kingdom of ourselves or are we living for the kingdom of God? And how do our actions reflect that? So maybe as we reflect on this King Jesus bringing in this beautiful kingdom of life and peace, and as that means we have to step off the throne of our own lives, maybe this year, this can be a time for us to reflect and see the ways that we maybe need to step off the throne and allow King Jesus to come in and reorient some things and to transform our lives in some ways. But maybe for some people today here, you haven't even entered into the kingdom at all, that you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you haven't believed in Christ. I wanna invite you today, to put your faith in Jesus. That he, like we said, he's the king who came and died as a criminal for you. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died in our place. He was raised in the third day to show his power over sin and death and to invite you into this life, this life of forgiveness, this life of peace, this life of being made right with God. So maybe today you wanna talk more about that. I'd love to talk to you more. I'll be down here on the front row singing along with everybody else. But if you need prayer, whatever it is that you need today, I would love to talk to you more uh, about this kingdom and about this King Jesus. But let's let this time, let's let this season of the year be a time where we reflect on the true King who has come to bring something we could never do on our own, but he's come to do it in beauty and power to show us his love for us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you so much for uh, the beautiful picture, the beautiful, wonderful mystery that we see and how you came for us. That the God of the universe would allow himself to come as a human, to be born in a barn, to be held even in the, in the hands of the very people he created, Father, all the while still being the God of the universe, the God of all creation. So I pray that we would be captured by that beauty, that we would contemplate uh, the love that you have for us and that uh, for those of us in this room that are believers, that it would would just kind of captivate our hearts and stir up our affections for you this time of the year that we would seek to really prepare our hearts for this time of the year, this celebration. But for those in this room that don't know Jesus, I pray that uh, th- this story, this beautiful story of you coming to us would, uh, would compel them or would break their hearts and open them to receive this King and to receive this kingdom and to put their faith and their life in him. We thank you for this time. I pray in Christ's name, amen.